We don't have outbreaks where chickens are dying from coccidiosis. Why not? Well, because we're either we're using either uh, what we call uh, chemoprophylaxis, which is uh, drugs in the feed, whether they're synthetic anticoccidials or ionophores, or we're using what we call immunoprophylaxis, which means we immunize, the, we vaccinate the birds and hope to get them immunized. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. Working with nature and not against it. Chickens fed AX3 Digest consume significantly less feed and water to produce one pound of meat. Successful flock performance is determined during the first 10 days post-placement. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible novel protein that most improved in barn performance, bird health, and a drier litter. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Poultry Podcast. My name is Jason Emmert, and I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Hector Cervantes, who is an adjunct graduate professor in the College of Veterinary Medicine in the Department of Animal Health at the University of Georgia. He's worked for Fibro Animal Health, serving as the Senior Manager of Poultry Veterinary Services for the North American region, and has been active in the poultry industry for, I believe, over 30 years. Dr. Cervantes has been very supportive of industry organizations, previously serving as president of the American Association of Avian Pathologists, the Southern Poultry Science Society, and the American College of Poultry Veterinarians. And he has received many awards, including two I would like to mention. The Lamplighter Award from the U.S. Poultry and Egg Association, awarded earlier this year, and induction into the Latin American Hall of Fame by the Latin American Poultry Industry Association in 2017. Dr. Cervantes, it's an honor to welcome you to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Doctor. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Now, it would be foolish to have a conversation with you without discussing coccidiosis. So we'll focus on that. But I'm sure we'll touch on some other things as well. But if you don't mind, to get us started, could you tell us a bit more about your background, your career, and in particular, how you came to develop expertise in this area of coccidiosis? Um, sure, I'll be happy to do that. Um, well, first... Um I first came to uh, the United States, to the University of Georgia, to pursue a master's degree in the poultry science department. I completed my master's degree, went back to work in Mexico for Ralston Purina for a couple of years in the tech technical service area, and then um, 
you know, my wife had some family issues with her mother. We moved back to the U.S. back in um, 1983, if I remember correctly, and uh, took a job. My first industry job was uh, with Cargill in the, as a turkey production veterinarian. Uh, from there, I went to Pearson Farms, where I was director of health for the broiler division and the primary breeders. And uh, from there, I took a job with uh, Pfizer at the time. It was Pfizer. Uh, moved back to Georgia, where our family lived. So I've been here ever since 1995. Uh, in 2000, Fibro acquired the feed additive business from Pfizer, and that's how I ended up with Fibro. And I was between Pfizer and Fibro. I was 27 years with the company and doing primary coccidiosis uh, research and field work with customers in the United States. Ten years I covered Canada, Mexico, and the United States. Uh, so I have plenty of opportunity to get out and see different operations in different countries, but primarily working on coccidiosis issues. Absolutely. Um, yeah, one thing I want to mention is that I'm most proud of is that I was able to validate my degree in the United States. So I have a full license to practice here uh, in spite of having graduated for a non-accredited university at the time. UNAM is now fully accredited, but that didn't happen until about 30 years after I graduated. So I had to go through the examinations procedure and uh, – very proud that I succeeded and got a full license to practice. Very good. Very good. Well, we're happy too, because that's led to some, some very important things here. I, I think it's really interesting that you've had the chance, and, and I think quite a few people that work in, in North America do, uh, but the chance to see the industry, Latin America, the U.S., in Canada, different industries, but I'm sure lots of similarities as well. So I don't know if there's anything you'd like to add about that. Uh, well, it's very, very interesting you mentioned because uh, there are some significant differences. That the thing they have in common, of course, they're, they're producing high-quality protein to feed the world. That's in common for all of them. And they're all having to deal with uh, health issues in their flocks at some point or another. Uh, but there are some striking differences. For example, Mexico, uh, the market is pretty much 100% for a highly pigmented bird. Uh, so the birds are, I tell the students, they're not yellow, they're orange, because we, we used to mix red and, and, and yellow pigments to get that orange color. So it's a very distinct difference, and, and coccidiosis is extremely important because the first thing that is impacted is absorption, Absorption, intestinal absorption, and especially pigments. So the first thing you're going to see in a flock impacted by coccidiosis is a change in pigmentation, which the Mexican market is extremely sensitive to it. Um, Canada, the difference there is that it's a quota market. So the producers cannot, the government says how many chickens are going to be placed this year and how many breeders will be bought and all of that. So and it's not integrated like the United States or Mexico. The big integrators like Bachoco in Mexico, fully integrated, just like Tyson or Pilgrims here. Um, so the Canadian system is, you know, they have people that sells um, uh, baby chicks and people that sells feed to the producers and the 
another company buys the chickens for processing. So it's, 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 those are the main differences. But coccidiosis is coccidiosis, and the coccidia behave the same way. Their life cycle is the same, whether it's Mexico, Canada, or the United States. Absolutely. You have biology and you have economics, and they can, you know, biology is pretty consistent. Economics, not so much. <laughs> Yeah, profit. So that's that's where coccidiosis come in picture. You bet, you bet. I'm sure though the the structure of the industry uh, can greatly impact the decisions people make and how they approach prevention, how they approach treatment. Uh, yeah, it certainly would affect those things. I'm sure. Very true. Because, for example, as you know, as you well know, in Canada and Mexico. Uh, after each flock, the houses are completely emptied, cleaned out, disinfected. Um, in Canada, a lot of them have concrete floors that you can clean, wash, disinfect, and bring new litter. And this happens after every placement. In Mexico, it's the same way. Uh, whereas in the United States, we use a system where we reuse the litter, uh, built-up litter. And that's actually turned out to be a pretty good Pretty good system for the United States, very economical and good for the chickens in the long term. Believe it or not, uh, used litter has been determined to be to lessen the risk of having the chronic enteritis, for example, or a coccidiosis outbreak, for that matter. Some of the worst coccidiosis outbreaks are uh, called the so-called new house syndrome <laughs> or the or the where there's no challenge at all, and all of a sudden they get exposed and have a major outbreak. Very... Very unique, distinct differences. Of course, Mexico is moving more towards the tunnel ventilated houses like in the United States, but uh, they're not as along as the United States. And, of course, Canada is all enclosed because of the weather. But, uh, yeah, so there are some management differences, but in the end, all are trying to control coccidiosis. Mexico, like I said, pigmentation is so important that uh, they routinely conduct uh, osis counts from the litter uh, at various intervals. And, and they do it for every house, for every flock, every week. And a lot of times they make a decision to treat based on osis count. They don't wait. They see if we wait till we see lesions, if we wait till we see lesions, we're already too late. We already lost the game. So those are striking differences. Absolutely. And I, it sounds like with, uh, with the different kind of production realities, um, it makes it all that much more important to truly understand mechanisms and, and how coccidiosis uh, works and, you know, the biology of it, because that is consistent across, uh, across systems. But you know, having that basic understanding is absolutely crucial if you're going to know how to prevent and respond, no matter what the production system is. Absolutely. And, and of course, as you know, uh, there are also big differences because in Canada, for example, the veterinarians have uh, licensed veterinarians have more latitude. They can prescribe things in feed, which we cannot do in the United States. They can they can change dosages. They have a flexible dosing for licensed veterinarians so they can use higher levels of a particular drug. They may check with Parad and determine you know, maybe add a couple of days to the withdrawal period or something like that. But they have a lot more flexibility. In the U.S., there's no extra label drug use in feed, period. Uh, so the same way, they have a, 
a lot more flexibility for that. So that that impacts coccidiosis control. Of course, the other main thing, main difference in the United States is that um, or our, our, there, there's been a growing market for so-called birds raised without antibiotics, okay, so, or ABF, or they call it NAE, no antibiotics ever, without antibiotics, RWA. Uh, and that had created a lot of issues for preventing coccidiosis for, because basically uh, ionophores, um, ionophore anti-coccidials have been the backbone of coccidiosis prevention worldwide for many years. Ever since menensin was introduced into the market back in 1971, look at that, it's 1971, here we are in 2020, one was how many years? <laughs> 60 years. And we're still uh, using uh, monensin successfully in both chickens and turkeys. Um, so when you take that tool away by going antibiotic-free, in the United States, ionophore anticoxidials are, are considered antibiotics, unlike the, the European Union. The European Union allows use of Ionophores, because truly speaking, they're not used for growth promotion. They are used to prevent coccidiosis, which, of course, results in better growth. But they have no use whatsoever in human medicine. They're highly toxic. <laughs> so they're never going to be used in human medicine. There's no cross-resistance issues. So they're allowed to be used. Whereas in the United States, we took a stance, or the FDA took a stance that they're antimicrobials and therefore cannot be used in production like such as NAE or RWA. Um, and that a lot of issues with coccidiosis because that means to prevent coccidiosis, you, you can only use two things, uh, synthetic or chemically synthesized anticoccidials such as uh, nicarbazine, uh, zolene, uh, clopidol, amprolium, etc., or vaccines, live, live coccidiosis vaccines. But um, even though the vaccines can be very effective when, when a full protective dose is administered to each and every chicken, um, the reality is because we spray them in a, in a, in a, in a, in a cabinet at the hatchery, uh, is a spray vaccination, it, it is extremely difficult to get 100% full coverage for every baby chick. And that has created issues in the field uh, with, you know, excessive consumption of oses from birds that are naive because they miss the vaccination at the hatchery, but they pick it up from litter later on. That can result on issues in the field, such as necrotic enteritis. And uh, so those are big differences between Canada, Mexico, and the U.S., Absolutely. And it's, it's, it seems like a rare situation where um, there's greater latitude in the EU than, than we have here with regard to, you know, prevention strategies. Yes. I, I have a good friend that uh, made, a, made a funny statement, but very true. He says, well, now we're preaching Catholicism to the Pope, you know, in the <laughs> gone beyond. I mean, they're the ones that started this movement, and now we've taken even a more drastic approach that is really going to tie in our hands as far as coccidiosis control. And I'm sure you heard recently uh, Tyson, the big 
integrator in the United States has uh, changed their views on armed force and have started talking about uh, another label, uh, the, no antibiotics of human importance, no antibiotics raised with no antibiotics of human importance, NAHI, which is a very good move in my opinion because that opens the door to go back and start using the honor force, uh, which, like I said, have been the backbone of coccidiosis prevention worldwide. Uh, and that doesn't mean you cannot use vaccines. The vaccines have a place, of course, in the rotations. It's always good to reach houses with sensitive strains of coccidia and give all the drugs a rest. Uh, but it's also important to have more tools at our, our disposal. We have the five or four anticoccidials that can be used in chickens and two in turkeys. We should take advantage of that. Yeah. Absolutely. I, the, thinking of uh, the, the spray vaccines, it makes me think of how difficult it is to get a group of adults to stand still for a picture and everybody line up where you want them. A, a group of chicks in a box to get them to spread out and, you know, take this vaccine. Yeah, impossible. <laughs> that's a very so. good analogy and, and very true. It's just, uh, that's our biggest, our biggest area of opportunity, as I see it at the hatchery, is in, in finding a method where we could administer a, a full protective dose of vaccine to each and every chick. If we could do that, and I know there's companies working as we speak on just doing that, where they could actually administer the dose directly to each baby chick. If we get to that point, uh, that, 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 that would be a game changer. For Absolutely. So you mentioned there the uh, kind of that's a pressing issue at the hatchery. What do you see as maybe the top concern? Um, and, and maybe if we focus on the U.S. poultry industry for a minute, um, when you think about coccidiosis, what now is your the most pressing concern that you would have? Well, the pressing concern, there, there are several. Okay. One, one is like I mentioned before, going in these uh, programs where uh, uh, antibiotics like like ours are not allowed in the program, um, a lot of pressure on on the chemically synthesized anticoccidials, and those have been around for more than fifty years, most of them, uh, and relying on seven anticoccidials to go in. The problem with the Synthetic anticoccidials is that, especially the most uh, potent or more effective ones, uh, tend to select, uh, put selective pressure and select for strains of coccidia that become resistant. So you cannot be on one of them, you know, indefinitely. You have to be rotating. There is a limited number of drugs that can be used, and some of them cannot be used year-round, like nicarvacin is very effective, but it has some issues during hot weather, so uh, it, it is recommended not to be used during hot weather. So that, that again, is your options. Um, so that, that, is, that is one of the biggest issues I see. The other, of course, is if we could get the vaccines to be find a way to administer the dose to each baby chick, uh, again, it'd be a big game changer. Um, but I, I am glad to see the move by one of our largest integrators to uh, 
begin allowing use of ionophores again in their programs uh, and uh, have more options to prevent coccidiosis because basically our I, I, we, we, we don't have any new products. Basically, the, the last chemical approved in the, or synthetic anacoxidial approved in the United States was 1999. Some, some others have been around since 1955. I mean, in 1955, 1999 was the last one. The Force Monensi, 1971, and that some of the latest ones... Uh, like semduramycin, it was 1994, 94. So we're, we, we have products that uh, have, have a lot of mileage already. And because of the expense, uh, another big problem I see is the expense that is involved bringing a new FDA-approved product to the marketplace. Um, I was reading some of the old papers by Dr. Reed, and they were, he was talking, is now it's expensive. A company may spend up to $30 million, you know, to bring a new drug. That was in, that was in 1960. Do you know how much it is now? I talked to Dr. McDougall. He, said, he says there's not going to be any new ones. Bringing a new product is going to be costing around half a billion dollars. Company, no pharmaceutical company that is going to touch that anywhere in Europe or the United States or any other developed country. And that's why you don't see any. There's nothing in the pipeline as far as FDA-approved products. There's a lot of alternative products, but not, not FDA-approved products. All right. The financial risk is enormous. I mean, just, well, not manageable. Yep. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just incredible. So that's why I keep telling our customers and producers that, we need to manage these tools in a very rational way with very good scientific basis, uh, including how these products work, mode of action. Um, so we rotate among different modes of actions. We use the vaccines to reseed the houses with sensitive strains. It's, we improve management of the houses to make sure uh, whether they're, if they're vaccinated, maybe they need to be managed a little different. Uh, so that we get um, good immunity development against coccidiosis in the long term because we're not going to have any new product. We're going to have to depend on the same seven chemicals we've had for a long time and the five ionophores we've had for a long time. Right. And it sounds like this is this is definitely an area where for anyone working in production or, or having anything to do with bird health, you really need to have an understanding of all the available products, the advantages, the disadvantages, the timing, so that you can yeah mix and match to the best of your ability. Can't just have one favorite and stick with that. No, no. We, we saw that happen with selenomycin years ago when uh, it became too cheap because there was two companies fighting, fighting it out for market share the price down from I don't know what it was four fifty or five fifty a ton to less than two dollars, and everybody was on that product. And it's a great product. You shouldn't stay on it for years at a time. So uh, we run into issues of less effectiveness due to how long they stayed on it. I'm talking about resistance. Another area of opportunity that I see for many companies, especially those that are 
exclusively using uh, synthetic anticoxidials for the NAE programs. Some of them are comfortable using vaccines and chemicals. Some are comfortable only using synthetic anticoxidials, and some are comfortable only using vaccines. But most of them use synthetic anticoxidials at some point. And for those, we always, always recommend they conduct routine anticoxidial sensitivity testing, which means they, they collect samples from their own litter from 10 different flocks. Um, they're submitted to a laboratory qualified to do these uh, testing. There are several. And the isolates from these samples are tested for uh, sensitivity against different anticoxidials. And it can be synthetics and it can be ionophores. And we can argue that, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an unfair comparison of synthetics versus uh, ionophores on a six or seven day test. But you can compare, let's say, just compare your chemicals against your chemicals and your ionophores against your ionophores. But it is, I think, important these days to have a baseline to know okay, this is where I was as far as sensitivity to nicarvacin or zolene or monensin, and this is where I am a year later. I think if you build a once once per year, uh, you can have a very useful tool. Remember, we don't have uh, antibiograms like we do for sensitivity against E. coli or some other bacteria. Uh, we're dealing with coccidia, so the coccidial sensitivity test is the best we have at this point. There have been great advances in molecular techniques, uh, but as far as I know, we don't have a, a practical molecular test or that we can take to the field to say, okay, I'm going to test sample from this litter and it's going to tell me the coccidia are sensitive to these and resistant to that. We don't have that. Fortunately, we have been run an in vivo test with live chickens and that takes that takes some time that's what i also tell if you if you want to do that just plan ahead of time know when to collect your samples and be expecting 10 to 12 weeks before you get results because you have you have to have the drugs you have to order chicks you have to grow the chicks to, to at least two weeks then you have to challenge then you got to six days later score the lesions, then summarize all the data, analyze all the data, produce a report. And so, in fact, it's, it's, it's unreal to expect the result in any sooner than, I'd say, 10, 12 weeks. The, the next question I wanted to ask is, if, if you're looking at a production system, is there a, a particular situation you would call a perfect storm that it looks like this is the worst case scenario is as far as probably having a coxie outbreak? Well, that's a good question. Uh, usually the problems with coccidiosis are related to, as you know, it's, it's, a, it's a numbers game, basically. Uh, too, much, too many oases can overwhelm a chicken and even a drug uh, if, if the dose is high enough. So I would say where you have conditions where oases uh, – Obviously, the oses are excreted and sporulated. For to sporulate, they require 
temperature, oxygen, and those two are usually in the same range of the chicken. So that's going to be right there in the chicken house. The last and most important one is moisture. The amount of moisture in the litter is what's going to be critical. If it's not enough litter, if it's not, I'm sorry, if it's not enough moisture in that litter, the oasis will not sporulate, which would be bad in the case of vaccines because, let's say, at the beginning, there's not enough moisture in, 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 in let's say, a pullet replacement roller breeder setup. There's not enough moisture early on, but the oasis are there. They're just not sporulated. When the birds start growing and dumping more moisture on that litter and drinking more water and spilling more water, all of a sudden you get massive sporulation of oasis and a coccidiosis outbreak can occur. That's one example of a bad situation for not enough moisture. But the typical one is where you have leaky drinkers, uh, too much moisture, not enough ventilation in the house, so there's too much moisture and ammonia, etc. And those oases are sporulating very quickly, and, and the numbers are large enough to overwhelm any prevention program you might have. So I would say the perfect storm is where you, where you have wet litter. And, of course, if you have wet litter, usually going along with that is deficiencies in management whether it's ventilation or something else. So you put stress stressor on top of stressor on those um, birds, and yes, you're, you're asking for a perfect storm that can result in a coccidiosis, actually a clinical outbreak, or secondary infections later like necrotic enteritis and so forth. But yes, um, there are conditions where there are more conducive to uh, overwhelming the system and having coccidiosis. Now, having said clinical outbreak, I need to qualify that. Typically, in commercial production, we do not see clinical coccidiosis, okay? We don't have outbreaks where chickens are dying from coccidiosis. Why not? Well, because we're either, we're using either uh, what we call uh, chemoprophylaxis, which is uh, drugs in the feed, whether they're synthetic anticoxidials or ionophores, or we're using what we call immunoprophylaxis, which means we immunize, we vaccinate the birds and hope to get them immunized. So we're not going to have typically clinical coccidiosis unless something like, okay, they, le they left the drug out of the feed, they got feed without anticoxidial, or they run out of feed, things like that, obviously, are going to cause secondary problems such as coccidiosis. But, um, yes, I would say managing the litter moisture is probably one of the most important things you can do to aid drugs or vaccines in being successful as far as preventing outbreaks, or of, obviously of clinical, but the, the key is controlling subclinical infections because coccidiosis, like I said, is not going to be a clinical problem. And subclinical infections are the most difficult to diagnose and treat and assess. Why? Because if you walk in a chicken house and you just walk through it, apparently the birds look normal. They're not sick. They're not dying. They don't have signs of disease. But if you take 
five birds at random, humanely euthanize them, and then examine their intestinal tract, oftentimes you find that several of those five, maybe two or three, will have mild, moderate, or moderate lesions, typical lesions of coccidiosis, which we know what they look like. In, in roller chickens, there are three species. There are the big three, Acerbulana in the upper small intestine, primarily the duodenum, Imeria maxima in the mid-intestinal tract, and Imeria tenella infecting the cica. So you're going to find either typical lesions that you know what they are, or you can, in the case of maxima, because the lesions are not so distinct as Acerbulana and tenella, you always have to scrape the mid-intestinal tract, do a serial scraping, of the mucosa of the mid-intestine, examine it microscopically and look for the very unique large oses of Imeria maxima. That's why it's called maxima. It produces the largest doses. Anybody can diagnose Imeria maxima based on the oses size because it's the largest. So uh, if you do that, oftentimes you find that there is coccidiosis there, which means there is a subclinical infection. Now, there is a difference between subclinical infection and coccidiasis. We used to call coccidiasis with an A, not with an O, an infection for a while. Some people get it confused. They say that's subclinical coccidiasis. No, no, that's not subclinical coccidiasis. It's been defined. Clinical, of course, you have symptoms of the disease, <coughs> bloody, bloody um, feces or bloody excreted, sick birds that are uh, your typical sick bird attitude, they're, uh, they're uh, huddling and they're inactive and they, they just look sick. You got enteritis, you get mortality in the case of Tonella. So that's clinical. That's, that's usually not the problem. Subclinical is what I described before, and that's why we do these so-called coxy checks or call them coxy checks or necropsy sessions or broiler health surveys or whatever you want to call them, where we bring 12, 14, 16 different flocks, five birds from 16 different flocks, and go through them in a post-mortem examination to assess how well we're controlling coccidiosis, for example. So we're looking there for subclinical infections. Um, coccidiasis, on the other hand, so the subclinical infection doesn't have symptoms, the birth look normal, you can't tell, but when you do the postmortem, you find either the parasite or the lesions. And those infections are severe enough to be impacting performance. Usually, you lose a little bit of, you, you lose feed conversion, uh, pigmentation, weight gain. But not to a point where you can tell they're sick. It's just they're below what it is. It, that's why it's called coccidiosis. It's called an embezzler. It's, 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 it's an embezzler. You don't realize that he's robbing you until you balance the books. And then you realize what happened here at the end. When you settle the flock, that's what happened. But you don't know. Uh, so it's different from a, you know, a thief that just comes and holds you up with a, with a gun. That's, that's different. That's the clinical outbreak. Coxidiasis, on the other hand, is an infection that is so mild that it doesn't have a measurable impact on performance. So we have three levels, clinical, subclinical, and coxidiasis. Coxidiasis is fine, but 
there's a, there's a, a fine line between those. Uh, the, the subclinical and coccidiasis can quickly turn into a subclinical infection if the management conditions are such, like I mentioned, like the litter starts getting too wet, the birds didn't develop immunity correctly because they weren't vaccinated properly, or because we skip a, a, a drug in the feed in one load or something happened. It, it could be due to things like that. Yeah, I love that analogy. That's a great, a great example, the, the embezzler. And when, you know, for one bird, eh, not that big a deal, but you multiply it by so many birds, so many houses, so many flocks, and my goodness, it adds up. And, and, and if you look at the surveys of production veterinarians uh, in, in the United States, they rank coccidiosis as the number one issue, maybe followed by necrotic enteritis, or sometimes I've seen even Imeria maxima, which I say, well, that's one species of coccidia. So, so it's obviously uh, remains a headache. And it's so funny because I go back and read, uh, I read a lot of the old papers because you learn from history, not to repeat the same mistakes. You go back and you read, I was reading a paper from 1945, and, and, and it says coccidiosis is the biggest issue, just like it is today, and we still know so little about it, and we don't understand, really. And we're, I'd say I could open that a new presentation today and use that same statement because we are still got a lot to learn. In spite of what all the great things we've learned, there's a lot more to learn. Yeah, and that's a great testament to why, uh, why some of the older literature is so important. We can't, can't disregard that. We had some bright people doing some fantastic work years ago, and it was mostly here in the United States. And it's, I always, when I lecture my students on coccidiosis, I always tell them, go back and read some of the classic work by some of the giants in this field. It's, it's amazing what they did so many years ago. It's fascinating to go back and read it. It is. And I think perhaps we're moving into an era of another educational opportunity. Um if we're going to develop production systems that are in that line of no antibiotics um, of human importance, that gives us the opportunity to talk to the public about what that means and, and why that's important. Um, and so hopefully we, yeah, we will embrace that opportunity and be able to help the public better understand the importance of control and, and the tools at our disposal. I think, I think it's our responsibility as professionals to educate the public because I'm sure if you ask a housewife, you know, what she thought of a label that says antibiotic free in, in a chicken supermarket, she probably thinks, well, that means the ones that are not antibiotic free have antibiotics in the meat. Well, that's not true at all. You know, all meat is antibiotic free or, or, maybe residues so tiny that are below the tolerance allowed by FDA that are considered safe for human consumption. But uh, probably the labels may be confusing some consumers anyway, to the point where they say, well, if this is antibiotic-free, this means this one has antibiotics in it, or something like that. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, 
offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Natural Biologics is using cutting-edge science to dig deeper into the poultry health challenges you face. By gathering scientific evidence, they identify the most effective combinations of natural ingredients that improve animal health. Visit naturalbiologics.com poultry to see the newest research in both turkeys and chickens. Great. As, as we near the end of our time together, um, we have a couple questions we like to ask folks. And uh, one of those is, uh, if you have any favorite poultry-related book or resource, anything that's just been really handy to you over the years. Well, obviously, uh, Diseases of Poultry uh, textbook, uh, and, and, and not because we wrote the chapter on coccidiosis with Dr. McDougall and Dr. Jenkins, but just because it really has been a standalone textbook on avian diseases from, from the very beginning. It's funny, I remember uh, being in vet school in Mexico and studying avian diseases in the Hofstede, as it was named back then by the lead author, Hofstede, Dr. Hofstede from Iowa State University from the vet school. And, and so it's been a standalone valuable. It's like the Bible for a poultry pathologist. So I would say that's my number one reference book as a, as a veterinarian. You know, I'm sure the nutritionist would have a different uh, reference book of their preference. But certainly even this one covers, uh, covers nutritional deficiencies and things like that. So. I would say that's been the most useful for me. And now it is, is available in digital form and, and in hard copy, hard book copy, hard copy. So um, that, that's definitely been one. I never leave the, the house without it. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, nutritionists may have a different one, but I'm starting to think we should all share these and, uh, and have uh, multiple types of resources at our disposal because things aren't nearly as independent as I would have liked to have believed in grad school all those years ago. I'm a nutritionist. I'm not worried about disease. Well, they're not, they're not necessarily separate. <laughs> there you're, you're absolutely hundred percent right on that. And, and with this NAE, a lot of these issues have come to the surface that where we need to work in a team effort and bring expertise from all areas, the nutritionist, the veterinarian, the, you know, and, and combine those, efforts, the management experts to make a program succeed because it's, it's a learning curve going into these different program, new programs. Absolutely. Well, following up on the favorite poultry-related resource, is there is there a favorite non-poultry-related book or resource or activity? This is wide open. Uh, okay. Well, um, actually, uh my hobby has been reading coccidiosis papers and textbooks and everything I can collect forever. But recently, I broke my own rule. Uh, my wife and I took a trip to, to Madrid with my last name, Cervantes, being such a well-known name and respected name in, in, in Spain. We decided to go and look for a little bit of where my ancestor, my name comes from. And, of course, uh, the Cervantes' name is revered because uh, Miguel de Cervantes de Saavedra, the famous writer, kind of the counterpart to uh, 
um, uh, Shakespeare in the English world. Um, so I decided, well, I'm already here. I'm going to buy Don Quixote, uh, famous, famous book. And, and I'll tell you, it's been, I'm, I think I'm on page 899 and, and it's, it's about 12, 1100 or something like that. But I've enjoyed it tremendously. It's something different and that I should have done a long time ago. So I, I recommend it. It's hard to read because it's old Spanish, but it's, they said that after the Bible is the most translated book in the world to, to different languages, only second to the Bible. So I would say read Don Quixote and see if you can get some uh, some ideas for your for your own personal life. Absolutely. And I would bet almost anything that it's better than the movie, <laughs> the book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't see the movie, but uh, I'm enjoying the book. Very good. For sure. yeah, very good. Well, the last uh, question we have for you is um, if you would have any advice, let's say we have young people, people wanting to get into the poultry industry or the, the poultry related world, you have industry and university experience. Would you have um, any advice for how to be successful kind of coming into and, and working in the poultry world? Sure. Uh, well, the first thing is you have to have a passion for what you like, for what you do and what you like to do. So follow your heart. And, uh, you know, in my case, uh, University of Mexico, they preached to us back in those days about the importance of producing high quality protein for our people that uh, make it more accessible. And that became my and that's the reason I stayed in poultry. Even after I got my license, I said, no, I'm going to help feed the world. And if you, if, you, if you have a passion for what you do, you're going to be successful no matter what field you, you, you pick. Uh, poultry has been a great experience for myself. I would not change a, a thing if I went back to vet school. I'd do exactly the same thing. It's given me an opportunity to see the world, to interact with different, meet so many wonderful people in our poultry industry. And I, I spend a lot of time with young people. I, I'm on six PhD committees here in the Department of Poultry Science, even though I'm retired. And I'm on another one, at the, the, the College of Veterinary Medicine. And they're all bright, intelligent kids. It's a pleasure to work with them. And I always tell them, follow your heart. Do what you do. Pick an area that you want to develop expertise on and then just be passionate about it. And get involved with the associations, the scientific associations from what you're studying from an early, from an early time. And um, before you know it, you're going you're to be so many years in the industry and all of a sudden you are elected president of this and president of that because they've seen all the years you spent uh, putting your uh, grain of salt to, to make that organization a success. So I would say be passionate and join Join us a member student, become active with the boards of directors, and uh, the opportunities will open up because they're always there for the people that shows an, an interest. That's great advice. Yep. Follow your passion, uh, talk to people, network, contribute back, uh, just all great messages. Absolutely. Yeah. Give back. That's why yeah. I do a lot of teaching that uh, as a honorary member. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We sure appreciate your willingness to spend time and share your expertise uh, on this very, very important topic. And we hope you have a great rest of the day and a great rest of 2023. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Emmert. I'm very appreciative for the invitation, and I hope your listeners and viewers will benefit from some of the tips or the things we discussed today. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you to everyone out there listening. We hope you have a wonderful 2023 as well. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.